You're listening to The Central Cast, recorded each week in front of a live audience in Glendale, California. Today is, I believe, part four in our ongoing series on the parables of Jesus, entitled Parables, How Jesus used fiction to speak truth. And today we're looking at the parable of the laborers in the vineyard from Matthew chapter 20, and it reads this way. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for the usual daily wage, he sent them into his vineyard. When he went out about nine o'clock, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And he said to them, you also go into the vineyard and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. When he went out again about noon and about three o'clock, he did the same and about five o'clock he went out and found others standing around and he said to them, why are you standing idle here all day? They replied, because no one has hired us. And he said to them, you also go into the vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his manager, call the laborers and give them their pay, beginning with the last and then going to the first. When those hired at about five o'clock came, each of them received the usual daily wage. Now, when the first came, they thought they would receive more. But each of them also received the usual daily wage. And when they received it, they grumbled against the landowner, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the heat of the day. But the manager replied, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for the usual daily wage? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last one the same as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I want with what belongs to me? Or are you envious because I am generous? So the last will be first, and the first will be last. The word of the Lord. This parable, like most of Jesus' parables, it seems to me, was intended to shock, to disturb, and unsettle people's conceptions of God, but also their conceptions of fairness and equity and ethics and, and morality. For this reason, Jesus, I think, was perceived by many of his contemporaries, not as a good and moral teacher, but actually as unethical and unwise because he went against the traditional concepts of ethics and wisdom and fairness, both in his day and in ours, actually. And this parable is a great example of that. Like today, people back then lived in a meritocracy of sorts. People thought, you, know, you should get what you earn. <laughs> you should get what you deserve, so to speak. Workers should get what they deserve. They should be paid you know, fairly, nothing more, nothing less. Those who worked all day in the vineyard justifiably felt that it was unfair that those who worked only one hour were given the same wage as them. 
I've actually worked in a vineyard before and it's extremely hard work. My in-laws have a Pinot Noir vineyard up in Oregon and I pick grapes all day. And at the end of the day, your back is killing, your, your knees hurt, your hands hurt from picking the grapes. It's hard work. It's fair for those who worked all day to think that they should make more than somebody who just worked one hour, right? Who can blame them? But it's not so much that those who had worked all day were being treated unfairly, but that others were being treated with graciousness and generosity. And this was seen as unethical and unwise, not just because it wasn't fair to those who worked all day, but because such generosity, the thinking was, could enable laziness, create a situation where you know, the manager, the landowner is taken advantage of. Think about it. The manager went to the marketplace the next day to hire workers and word got around, hey, you work for this guy one hour, he'll pay you a whole, day whole day's wage. People would be like, no, thanks. I'll wait till five o'clock for you to come back, for you to come back and hire me. That's a better deal. Again, many would say Jesus's ideas of unconditional love, unconditional generosity, unmerited grace, some would say this is unethical. This is unwise. Because, you know, Jesus, you're creating a situation where, you know, you're enabling laziness. You're, 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 you're going to be taken advantage of. And to be clear, I want, I want to be careful. I don't think we should over-moralize these parables, you know, as if to say Jesus is telling us Here's what you should do in every single circumstance of life. Yeah, I don't think he was giving us a new set of Ten Commandments. I think that's actually the opposite of how we should read this. It's not a new set of Ten Commandments to follow, or he wasn't giving us a new set of rigid ethics and rigid moral laws to follow. Rather, I think he's challenging our conceptions of ethics and morality. He's asking questions in a way. He's challenging our conceptions of ethics and morality and, and our conceptions of God, what it means to be his people. Jesus was creating a break where a new reality could enter the world. That was the purpose of these parables, I think. They were shocking and disturbing and unsettling in order to create a break where a new reality could be imagined, a reality where we err on the side of unconditional love and grace and generosity and compassion, a reality where preferential treatment of the poor is commonplace rather than rare, a reality where the tables are turned and the poor are lifted up and the rich are humbled. And some will always see this. Some will always see this as potentially unethical and kind of unwise, but such is the kingdom of God. Consider, for example, today what happens whenever someone suggests that socialism is perhaps closer to the way of Jesus rather than capitalism, or that we should pay so-called low-level workers a living wage, or make health care affordable for all. Ironically, many Christians will be the first ones to resist such ideas and say that such Marxist ideas are dangerous and unethical because they create a system that enables laziness. 
in a system where the poor are given too much and the rich are not allowed to make as much money as they want. To such Christians who find that unethical, I say, have you ever read the Gospels? Are you familiar with Jesus of Nazareth? But on a deeper level, I think the parables and teachings of Jesus are not just supposed to challenge our ethics or our economic systems and our social values. Yeah, they're supposed to do that. But, but I think they're intended to demonstrate and reveal the radical, unconditional love of God for us. God is like the vineyard manager who generously bestows a full day's wage on the 11th hour workers. God is like the father of the prodigal son story that we looked at last week, who unquestionably welcomes his son home even before he repents. God is like the good Samaritan who helps a needy stranger lying half dead on the side of the road. God is like the good shepherd who leaves the 99 sheep alone in the field to go looking for the single one that's lost. In this, we find divine love revealed. In all these stories and many more of Jesus's, we find a kind of radical, unconditional love for those who are seemingly unworthy of it. In this, we find divine love revealed, which is love as a pure gift, love without strings attached or ulterior motives. You might call it love for the sake of love itself. This is, of course, what pure love looks like. In order for love to really be love, in the purest sense of the term, it must be freely given, meaning without why, without the hope or expectation of a return or a payoff, without the necessity of it being reciprocated, without condition. For love to really be love, in, in the purest sense of the term, it must be unconditional. Otherwise, you know, it's a quid pro quo. This for that. It's an exchange. There's strings attached. It's not really free. There's a price. You know, we've all, we're all familiar with that kind of love. I only love you if you love me, right? I'm reminded here of Jesus's words in Luke 6. He says, if you only love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do the same. If you only lend to those who can pay you back, what credit is that to you? Everybody does that. If you only do good to those who do good to you, so what? Everybody does that. But love for the sake of love itself, love without why, love without condition, love that way and you will truly be the children of God. That's Jesus, Luke 6. What this means with regards to God, I think, is that God's love cannot sound like this. God's love never says, love me or else. Love me and believe in me or I will incinerate you in the afterlife. Love your neighbor, or else, man, you, you better feed the hungry and clothe the naked and give water to the thirsty, 
or what awaits you when you're dead? You can't even begin to imagine what I'm going to do to you. Right? Love your enemies. Or get ready, man. <laughs> right? That's not God's love. Because again, for love to really be love, according to Jesus, Jesus and his parables and his various teachings, you could look at countless it must be freely given as an act of unmerited grace. Otherwise, it's not really pure love, divine love. It's something else. This is why the traditional Christian belief in a hell for unrepentant sinners is ironically, in my opinion, not Christ-like or Christian at all. We must repudiate the doctrine of hell, I think. The traditional Christian belief in a God who incentivizes good behavior by threatening us with violence, whether in this life or the next, is not a God of love. Because for love to really be love, it must not have such conditions and threats attached to it. You know, otherwise, God's love is like the love of a man who beats his wife, excuse me, by telling her, you know, why don't you love me? Why can't you get it through your thick skull how much I love you and why can't you love me back? We all know that's not love. So why would we think of, of God this way? This is his love. And for me, where all this leads is not just to you know, a social ethic or, or a different way of thinking about God or, or a way of living and you know, right relationship to others. It's, it, that's all in there. But a way, for me, where all this leads ultimately is a way of living in right relationship to life itself. What do I mean by that? Well, I'm talking about a life philosophy here, hidden in Jesus' teachings on radical love. Jesus' teachings on unconditional love, I think, are really a way of teaching us about loving and affirming life itself in all of its precariousness and difficulties. In other words, just as Love's true test is whether we can love the so-called unlovable. So the true test of our love of life is whether or not we can love and affirm life in the face of death, in the face of life's innate difficulties and uncertainties and perplexities. In other words, because and only because life is innately difficult and there are no guarantees of happy endings, only because of that, we have been given a great opportunity. The opportunity to love and affirm life in its depths and on its own terms. If this wasn't the case, if, if life was not innately uncertain and difficult, and we knew everything would work out great in the end because God is in total control, etc., then we wouldn't have this opportunity. We wouldn't have the opportunity to make such a glorious expenditure, such an act of unmerited grace, such an act of unconditional and pure love, which to me is an act of true faith. A pure act of faith, if there ever was one. You know, so many people believe that what makes religion and faith meaningful and powerful is that it guarantees that everything will be okay in the end because someone is up there to ensure it. But ironically, perhaps such a belief 
short circuits a more true act of faith, whereby we learn that the deepest affirmation of life can only be made, can only be made in the face of life's innate uncertainties and difficulties. I like how James Baldwin puts it. He said this, we are capable of bearing a great burden once we realize that that burden is reality and arrive at where reality is. Let me say that again. We are capable of bearing a great burden once we realize that burden is reality and arrive at where reality is. But so much of religion is intended to help us deny reality and escape reality by teaching us that life is not uncertain and God's in control and there's nothing to worry about. For me, that idea short circuits or thwarts a more true act of faith, a kind of courageous faith, a kind of saving faith, if you will, a faith that redeems us and the world completely because it is a faith based on love, pure love, unconditional love, love for the sake of love itself, and an unconditional affirmation of life as it actually is in all of its difficulties and uncertainties and perplexities. An unconditional affirmation of life as good beautiful and true in the face of life as it actually is, even in the face of death and all the unknowing surrounding that, which is reality, which is our true state, our true condition, the true state of affairs. We don't know. We are immersed in uncertainty. Life is precarious. We don't know what's going to happen tomorrow or if we'll even be here. That's life. To affirm life and love life anyway, that's, that's a true act of faith. An unconditional, glorious expenditure. Love for the sake of love. The picture of the kingdom of God, it seems to me. I like how our friend Jack Caputo puts it. He says this, there's no better cosmic setting for love than this chaotic universe that we're in. Love is the heart of a heartless world. The difficult glory of a crucified world. Love burns brightly in the sky of a dark and mysterious universe where even the stars, even the stars are mortal. End quote. This to me is the depth dimension of Jesus's parables and teachings and God's unconditional love. And I see it as a calling to a deeper faith, a faith in the power of love itself, our love for each other, and our love for this life and this world. And with that, let's turn to the Lord's Supper this morning. And I want to encourage you to meditate on this idea of God's unconditional love revealed in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. This is his body and this is his blood. An act, his crucifixion, his death, an act of unconditional love for us. The ultimate act of unconditional love, giving himself 
to the world. Let us meditate on this now and what it might mean for us to do likewise as the music team leads us in song. And for those of you who are new, a quick word about how we do this here. This is gluten-free, this is alcohol-free, this is free and open to all who wish to partake. And the way we do this is we serve each other, okay? So I'm gonna start it and everybody just passes it along and serves the person next to you as we believe an embodiment of what it means for us to be Christ in the world. Be blessed, Alex. Each episode of The Central Cast is followed by an interactive discussion. If you'd like to participate in recordings, or if you're interested in exploring progressive faith and theology for a postmodern context, check out centralavenuechurch.org. Here's this week's unedited discussion. So every week, for those of you who are new, we have a little discussion at the end of service here where you get to comment, question, disagree, complain. <laughs> Anything goes. Um, and so I want to invite comments at this time. And for those of you joining us via Zoom, you also are always welcome to unmute and we can hear you here in the sanctuary. That usually works well. Sounds like a voice from heaven comes out. <laughs> um, but yeah, I want to invite you know comments. And I'm curious, you know, what thoughts. You know, what what questions, I don't know, were sparked for you in anything I talked about today having to do with this parable or questions about what is love? You know, yeah, Marsha. I'm assuming, right or wrong, that you're saying we should also love unconditionally God. Oh, yeah. So my question to you, have you ever struggled with that? To unquestion, that's a great question. <laughs> Uh, you're asking, are we to unconditionally love God? That's a great question. Um, have I struggled with that? Yes. Yeah. You know, especially, you know, being somebody who has undergone deconstruction, to use the buzzword. Um, I, I think a lot of my current theology is the result of me struggling with what does it mean to, you know, love, love God? Um, Certainly, in a, in a way, I've done away with that God that I critiqued in my sermon today, right? The, the God of hellfire and brimstone. I can't love that God because that God, for me, is not a God of love, right? That's where I'm at with that. Um, and for me, to practice unconditional love um, doesn't mean that we, like, stay in abusive relationships, right? Uh, I think we need to be careful about that. And if you think about the way... A lot of us were raised with the God that we were raised with. It was kind of like an abusive relationship, right? This, this God that brutalizes us or tells us that because we're gay, we're an abomination, right? And tells us, you know, uh, all these oppressive things about how to live, right? To um, you know, deny our section. Oh, there goes my mic. Can I get you that mic since it's working well? So all that to say, un unconditional love does not mean not loving ourselves. Does that make sense? We, unconditional love doesn't just go that way. It goes this way. And sometimes to really practice love means to practice self-love, right? You, you, can, you can love your enemy without allowing them 
to run roughshod over you or to abuse you to take it. You know what I mean? Like I love my father still in a way. I forgive him, but I also realize he's an unsafe person. My real dad, my earthly dad, so to speak, right? But a lot of ways, I would, I, I refuse to dehumanize him. I refuse to um, deliberately do something that's you know oppressive or harmful to him. Of course, he would say me ignoring him is, but I have to have boundaries there. But you would, you know, a therapist would say you're not mistreating your father by having boundaries. But of course, a narcissist would say, should be no boundaries. It was only me and I get to do whatever I want to you. So unconditional love is also meaning taking care of ourselves and having love, love for ourselves. I'm going around this question in some various ways. I'm meandering. That's a really good question. You know, have I answered it? Have I addressed it? Okay, does somebody else want to address it? How have you struggled? With how did, how did you put it, Marcia? Uh, you said, uh, how, do, how do, you, do you struggle with loving God? <laughs> Un, unconditionally, yeah. Yes, yes, yes. What does it mean to love God if not to love one's neighbor? That's another way to look at it, you know? What? Unconditionally. One cannot love God directly, I've said before. You can only love God indirectly by loving your neighbor, as Jesus showed us, you know? As the text says, anyone who says, I love God and yet hates his brother is a liar. You can't love others. I mean, you can't love God unless you love others, the scriptures teach us. Well, sometimes if, if I don't love my neighbor, and I'm certainly guilty of that, anytime I turn my back on my neighbor who's in need, am I not saying that I don't love God? You know, in a way. So we, we go back and forth. When we, when, we treat, when we love our neighbor as ourself, when we're, we stand in solidarity with the oppressed, right? care for the least of these, that is an act of love to God. That is how we love God. And when we don't do that, it's not an act of love to God. That's, that's a scriptural way of looking at it, in my opinion. But somebody else I have thoughts about this. Yeah, Emily. Sure. I just wanted to give everyone here the warning that I am the person who worked all day and got paid and then was mad that the person came for an hour. And yeah, that was me. Um, I have a really big issue with that because for me, that means injustice. So it's not like I was, I was wronged, right? Like, even though in that thing, it's like, were you wronged? No, I got the pay that I got and I was compensated for what I did. But to me, it's an injustice if someone else gets the same, but they didn't put in the same work. This is therapy session for me. Just FYI, we're at a church now. I'm in, you're my therapist. So, you know, like how, how is it not an injustice for someone else to, because I really need to focus on that in my life. <laughs> oh yeah, you can't talk without the radio. <laughs> well, you raise a good question. I don't have a neat, tidy answer for you. Um, you know, you could flip the, the script a little bit here and say, arguably, the janitor at the Fortune 500 company is working harder physically than the CEO, right? Janitor's making 50000 a year. CEO's making $50 million, right? Well, flip the script. You know, you say, well, it's, it's tough, right? Um, you know, and again, the, these parables are meant to disturb, they're meant to unsettle. 
our neat and tidy conception of what fairness and equity are and suggest, you know, that, you know, back then it was, it was to suggest that the poor are not being treated justly. It, was, it wasn't to suggest the rich aren't being treated justly. It was just the poor are not being treated justly. And that the way of God is the way of preferential treatment. God has a preference for the poor and the powerless and the oppressed. And therefore we should, as the people of God, be likewise. That was the idea there. But you raised some good questions. Um, Laura. I, I just wanted to add that, you know, in that parable, the man was his own wealth, his own work that he was giving out. And his words were, you will get a full day's pay, right? And that was the deal. So it didn't say, but you'll only get half day or you'll get a third day or whatever. It was a full day's pay, period, end of story. The person that was upset thinking that it wasn't fair because they worked the whole day and the other person just worked an hour, they were putting themselves in a state of jealousy and comparison, not being having gratitude that they worked a full day, they did their job, and they got their full pay. Instead of worrying about other people and putting your nose in other people's what their deal is, even that of the of the person who hired them and letting letting them recognize that they are putting themselves in a state of jealousy and comparison. And when you do that, that's when you're not in in your in you are you're with your conditions of love. Yeah, that was well put. Yeah, Marcia. It just triggered a thought. When I used to work at Rockwell International, I'm recalling now that we were told upon being hired, you are never, ever to discuss your salary with anyone else. And I'm wondering if really what behind that was that depending on when you were hired, you may be either because of the market rate at the time, you either might be paid more or less depending on where it sat. But if you knew that your neighbor, literally in the next, we had cubicles, next little cubicle doing even less maybe in terms of output, got more money. And our Yeah, Laura, you wanna to respond to that, okay. I just wanna say uh, in, in today's world um, of bosses and CEOs and workers it's a very it's a big gap in wealth and justice but those are being put forth of people who it isn't their money and they aren't good actors so in your situation you're also dealing with earthbound human things, responsibilities, where they, they, they aren't always the best actors and they will use other people to pocket things for themselves. So I can't say that with your situation, you know, you still have to love them anyway and deal with your own stuff, but, but there is also 
not just being a parable, but a reality of this game that people are playing and the people that are doling out the, the money and deciding who gets what. It's not their money. It's everybody's money in that situation. But they create this system of the haves and the have-nots. So that is something, to me, is a different discussion. And this parable raises all these questions, right? Economic, economic questions. Um, and um, I, I think one of, one of the things I was thinking about adding to this talk that you kind of brought up, I think, Laura, was I, I think the point was, was that the, the workers who had worked all day should have had their heart melted by the generosity they saw. Instead of getting jealous and angry, the graciousness and the love of the landowner and the manager should have melted their heart. And this is, this is again, I think Jesus' Jesus's point here is so the love of God for all should melt our heart and make us agents of such love as well. And if it doesn't do that, what's wrong with us, right? What do we need to change about ourselves? You know, if we can't handle somebody else getting blessed, right? That's kind of a problem. You can't handle somebody else getting blessed. That's a problem. And it's, it's in here. Um, other thoughts? Yeah, Diana. Well, and I think that also speaks to what Marcia was saying about the unconditional, like our own unconditional love for God. You know, when we see other people being blessed and we don't feel that we're being blessed ourselves, not only do we often find like that we're feeling the jealousy of that, but that's also kind of, I would say personally, maybe caused me to not have that unconditional love for God, because then I wonder, okay, well, why is he you know, focusing on them and why am I never getting these blessings? But, you know, it kind of brings that around too. Well, yeah, it's not logical. And it's also our mindset. You know, we're focusing on something that is not what? Okay. <laughs> we're, you know, we're just focusing on the wrong thing and we're not focusing on the blessings that we are receiving that maybe don't look like blessings. It reminds me of something I heard that things don't happen to us, but for us. So maybe in this inequality and in this struggle, we all have our own story, our own struggle. But I think that if we're all unconditionally loving each other, the focus would be that all of our needs are met, period. Hey, Aaron, it's Akila. We're just gonna, this Rose is just gonna keep talking. Hello. It's really funny what you said just a second ago, because I was actually going to say something similar, but um, the parable actually just makes me think of what is it that we can do to be more like God, Jesus, and it is just being generous. And from, it's not necessarily about the unfairness of the person who received like the full um, wage as promised, who worked all day, but it's the, it's the generosity that you see from the person giving out the money and how can we be more like that like how can we just be equal to everyone how can we just give more and and not always judge based on what did you do but just because you're a human being so this is what you deserve because this is what i said i didn't say hey you only work an hour so you get paid an hour it's like work you work so how do we help others and be more like him so that's just what i got from it 
Hey, Aaron, it's Akila. Oh, hey, Akila, welcome. Yeah, go ahead. We can hear you loud and clear. Uh, speak, speak slowly because I find that it helps uh, for clarity's sake. Go ahead. Okay. Um, thank you for the sermon. Um, yeah, so this, I guess this kind of goes to Marsha's question about loving God unconditionally, but also an understanding of the parable. And I think for me, um, it's kind of two things. One of the things that I had to learn is that, or that I had to discover for myself is that God has a long view and I have a short view, which is to say that like when I'm driving on the highway, <laughs> I can see what's in front of me and I can see what's in my rear view and I can kind of see what's going on beside me, but God can see the highway. He can see the trees on the side of the highway. He can see the neighborhoods, on right? Like it's the long view. Um, and so the issue here with the people, the workers in the parable is that they don't know what the, um, what the, the vineyard owner, what he has to give. And he also, they also don't know why he's choosing to do it that way. And so this idea that it's not fair is only measured by what I understand of generosity or what I understand of what a day's wage looks like. It doesn't take into account anyone else's experience but my own. Whereas the guy who's paying these people, he knows what his wealth is and what he has to give and what he's able to give for whatever reason and why he chooses to do it. And so I think that, um, I think for me like that, unconditional thing. It's just understanding that my understanding isn't God's understanding. And then I have to be okay with that because otherwise I am walking around in the world thinking about how, um, how I'm comparing myself to other people when I don't know the whole story. Yeah. So. Good yeah. Thanks. Thanks, Akila. Um, yeah. And I think I, I just love how this parable also really deconstructs capitalism. I just, I just like that it completely, even there wasn't capitalism back then, but there was a kind of meritocracy, right? And capitalism is kind of built on this illusion of like a meritocracy. Everybody, like the janitor who makes $50,000 a year, you know, is really only earning 50000 He's working, you know, at that level of difficulty compared to the CEO who's making $50 million. The, the CEO making $50 million is working $50 million, whatever, a million times harder than the janitor, that's ridiculous, right? We don't live in a meritocracy. I just love how the parable thwarts that idea and suggests that maybe there's a better way to live together economically, you know, uh, relationally, socially, all of that um, in a way that, as Mariel says, that is focused more on, on generosity. And um, yeah, it's good stuff. Um, yeah, Jason and then, and then Marsha. And I like how we have a discussion that's actually longer than my talks. <laughs> can you have this golden ow my back is out oh, no sorry okay uh, can you have this golden rule of last will be first first will be last without um the afterlife because the parable before this one is about rich people have a hard time getting to heaven and there's this whole thing about how the disciples were like well we lost everything what do we get out of this? And Jesus ostensibly says, in the afterlife, you're going to get a lot. You're going to be kings. You're going to be rich. 
So, and then he says, the people who are rich now will be poor later, and the people who are poor now will be rich later. And in this one too, it's the same thing, right? Um, so how does this golden rule type thing work without future comeuppance is my question. So this is how I looked at it and you're free to disagree. Obviously, this is always the case. Um, you know, the gospels, the Jesus we find in the gospels, we know, we know now through scholarship is not quoted verbatim and the gospel writers added their own spin and their own theology to a lot of it. So did Jesus of Nazareth, the historical Jesus of Nazareth say such things? And is this you know, something that we need to infer as being, you know, what it means to be a Christian, be a Christ follower. You have to believe in the afterlife like that Jesus did in this passage here. For me, no. I, I, you know, and quite often I think the way Jesus even speaks of the afterlife, specifically about hell, is obviously totally metaphorical. Obviously metaphorical. That's my reading. And so to answer your question, Jason, I think you initially said you have to believe in the afterlife to understand those passages, like the first will be last and the last will be first. And the, the way I answer is no. Um, because quite often, even in the way Jesus even talks about the kingdom of heaven, you know, he even says, or the kingdom of God, you know, those who say, look, the kingdom of God is there, there's, you know, here, or coming there. It's like, no, the kingdom of God is within you. He says, it's, it's within you. It's not out there, it's in here. I mean, so you, you find even in the gospels, this idea that you know, it's not, when Jesus is speaking of the afterlife, the sweet by and by, could easily be taken as a metaphor for a, a way of living in this life in this world that turns this life in this world into heaven, potentially. Right? Uh, and we have the power to turn this life in this world into Hades or hell, as we talked about in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus uh, a few weeks ago. So I guess that's the way I answer your question. But it's not neat and tidy. And it's entirely possible that the real Jesus of Nazareth Desiree, I saw your hand. Oh, you didn't raise your hand? Oh, okay. Um, that's cool. Um, it's entirely possible that the real Jesus of Nazareth absolutely believed in the afterlife. I still believe in the afterlife to a certain degree. I have hope in that. But I, for me, these passages are just as easily read in a more metaphorical way, but I could be wrong. That's how I look at it, Jason. And I'm not pretending that that's neat and tidy, and I might be wrong. Okay. Uh, Somebody else want to jump in about that in particular, Laura? I got the uh, unconditional loving God when most people would hear that the opposite would happen, that if you're wealthy and now you will be at the bottom in heaven and the poorest will be at the top. My interpretation isn't as a punishing God for either one of those states, but an opportunity for humility and gratitude. That's why in earth time, we should be held accountable and taking responsibility of certain things so that we can learn to own certain things so that we can learn to be closer and more loving. So if you're a rich man and you're in that world, what better opportunity to understand the love of God unconditionally, but to be put in those shoes that you swear off and also just, it's like, 
you've lived your whole life as a liar. You can't lie anymore. There's no other place to go. So you have to face that. And for me, the most loving God isn't going to put you into damnation because you're caught and you're busted, but say, welcome back. Welcome home. You're loved anyway. And that's where the, the uh, when you have an epiphany of, of what we all want to learn, which is to love unconditionally. Does that make sense? Yeah, and just Jason, to respond further, you know, I, I think it's absolutely probably the case that folks living 2,000 years ago who were among the poor and oppressed class felt that, honestly, like the only thing they have to look forward to is heaven, where, you know, it's as if, you know, that that was a deeply liberating and comforting idea for people that were enslaved and downtrodden and afflicted in every way you can possibly imagine. And, you know, for me, I, I think that's probably in there, that, that, that message, like, hey, you know, um, rest assured that, yeah, this life sucks, but the next one will be great because, you know, we're with God. And, you know, there can, I don't know what to do with that. I'm just saying that's probably the case. That's probably part of the message. But for me, it's not the whole message. And for me, the underlying message is, I think, as Laura would say, this message of unconditional love and creating heaven on earth. Uh, Father, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I mean, that's, you know, we all cherry pick, and I'm the first one to admit it. <laughs> I, I cherry pick the parts of the Bible that I think are healthy and good and good for me. And that's, that's what I think we all do, whether we admit it or not. But, a uh, couple minutes left. Anybody else want to respond to this? Uh, yeah, Rodney. Just a thought uh, that I've thought of. A modern day version of the parable is this whole idea and debate about debt forgiveness and student loan forgiveness and why is it even a debate? You got the people you know, who paid their loans off saying, well, that's not fair. I had to pay mine off, so why would we forgive the current loan? It's just a self-centered way of thinking and totally not encapsulating the forgiveness that Christian love is supposed to entail. So yeah, just thought about that. And one, what is that, just a year ago? And it's still kind of ongoing. Yeah, good stuff. Um, okay, Marsha, and then that's it. I think that the statistics still show that people of faith tend to live longer and have a, a higher quality of life. And I think that if that statistic is accurate, it reflects the thought that all of the Bible and many of the chaplains, you're one of those that encourage love and unconditional love and forgiveness tends to allow all of us to heal because we're always suffering. Thank you for that. Thank you for those words. All right, let us conclude our time together as we always do with this joint benediction. Let's say this together now. As we go from this place, we commit ourselves to the path of love, honesty, and humility. We dedicate ourselves, as Christ did, to the cause of justice and the courageous embrace of this life 
this world and each other. Amen. Thanks for being here, everybody. Go in peace. Thank you.